You are listening to the Jason Killingsworth Podcast. Let's go. This is your host, Jason Killingsworth. I've spent nearly two decades studying creativity, first as a music and film journalist, which gave me access to world-renowned musicians, actors, and filmmakers, and then later as a video game journalist, where I explored the fascinating marriage of art, technology, and interactive storytelling. This podcast is all about curiosity, risk, self-expression, play, and the tension every artist and thinker navigates between order and the chaotic potential of the unknown. If you find these subjects equally rich, then you have come to the right place. Today's guest is Padraig O'Tuoma, an Irish poet, theologian, and conflict mediator who has spent his artistic career focusing on themes of exile, reconciliation, and embracing one's authentic self in a world that might not know exactly where to file us. He previously served as the leader of Coramila, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization. And he currently hosts the Poetry Unbound podcast for the On Being Project, which I enthusiastically recommend. And now I bring you Padraig O'Toole. I have Padre Gotuami here with me, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. <laughs> Great. So I thought um, instead of a, we'll get long-winded <laughs> after after we um, indulge in a bit of poetry, but uh, I thought it would be nice to to have you open with with the first poem from your uh, collection, The Book of Exile, and then we can... We can chat. Okay, great. So this is one of the earliest poems in this book called Readings from the Book of Exile. And it's got an Irish title, Joriacht, which is the Irish word for um, exile. But um, when you look at the meaning of Joriacht, it means to be in a state of tearfulness. Jor is the word for tear. And so it implies the um, pathos um, regarding exile. However, in, the, in so many religious narratives, exile is an absolute and vital part of the evolution of a people. And so there's a, a necessity to exile as well as a lament. And so this uh, plays with the Garden of Eden story. Joriacht. And their god was carved from their own hollow breathing. Their toil was hard, their babies born grieving. Clothed with desire, they continued believing that their lives began with their Edenic leaving. And he's afraid, and he will fear, and he is hiding, and he is here. Their path was worn as the furnace was yawning. They slept in the evening, they spoke in the dawning. She was the mother of all that was breathing. He was the earth and she was his reason. And she's afraid and she will fear and she is hiding and she is here. They came from nothing, so the nothing came with them. Their chaos lay open and their chaos played with them. And they're afraid and they will fear and they are hiding and they are here. They move between cunning and exposure, sometimes one answer, sometimes many, sometimes silence, never closer. And we're afraid, and we fear, and we are hiding, and we are here. In that, in that tradition, Eden is paradise. Eden is perfection. Eden is where I think many would would hope to still be today, uh, sort of naked, unashamed, uh, sort of reclined in the grass, <laughs> e- eating one of the uh, the non forbidden pieces of, of delicious fruit. But but yeah, yeah, incredibly cold. Um, well, except so, um, but I want to ch- like I feel like we need to kick that around yes, and, and beat it up a bit. Yeah, uh, this poem does, and do it that does quietly. Yeah. yeah. 
So there's the bit that says um, that their lives began with their Edenic leader. Yeah. And for, for this poem, so this poem is hugely influenced by a particular Midrashic scholar who, whose work I really admire, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. She works at Hebrew University. And um, I heard her being interviewed and she was asking somebody, she said, do I get it right that when Christians refer to the time when the Adam and the Eve characters are sent in exile out of, out of um, the Eden, uh, she said, do I get it right that Christians refer to that as the fall? And so hmm. went, yes, yeah, yeah. And she went, right. And it was well, the first thing is that it was just delicious to hear somebody have to check that. Because in certain circles, people would just understandably... I mean, yeah. I remember the first time I began to move in, in um, evangelical circles and someone referred to the fall. And I was like, from what? Like, what fell over? And they were like, no, no, the, the fall, capital T, capital F. Yeah. So she yeah. said, um, Aviva Zornberg said, in the Jewish imagination, it's more like an expansion because Adam was, was not made in Eden anyway. It says, now God took Adam and put him in the garden. So there's a question as to where Adam was made and how Adam was brought to the garden. And Rashi, the 12th century mystic, suggests that God would woo Adam with beautiful words into the garden, which is a lovely um, piece of uh, religious imagination. Hmm. However then, so their departure from it was probably always on the cards. That Eden was never the place that we were, that, that the, the humanity in these fictional characters was, and poetic characters was meant to stay that the whole play, the whole point was always to expand, and suddenly that totally opens up the question as to what was going on there. Um, was the eating of that fruit perhaps part of the whole thing? Because anybody who's anybody knows that if you say to somebody, "Don't do that," they'll do it. They'll mm-hmm. be curious. It's a way of evoking desire in people. Yeah. And what is our relationship with desire? How do we understand that? And so perhaps the question was not to have eaten the fruit. Um, secretly the point was to find a way to eat the fruit openly so hmm. the secrecy is the sin not the eating and I, I think that's for me what this poem is trying to, to trouble and trying to worry they discover something about themselves they suddenly are brought into the risk and creativity of a moment in all of that happens and they do begin to find themselves in this position of what happens now um, I love that the, whole idea of sinful succulence that, yeah. that a fruit is such a you just imagine the sort of juice running over the chin, that real kind of messy, like enjoying... Depends what kind of fruit it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. But There's an argument in um, Judaism as to whether it was a fig or grapes. Um, the uh, apple idea is it just comes through uh, art. You know, there's no, of course. There's no apple mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Hebrew, if you start a sentence... In ancient Hebrew, if you start a sentence with and... Now, I'm given to understand this by reading scholars. If you start a sentence with and, it means that you are saying that it is true now and into the future also. It gives a present continual into the future for it. So hence the, the refrain in this, and he's afraid, and she's afraid, and they're afraid, and we're afraid, plays with, um, plays with beginning sentences with and, which technically goes against English grammar. But from the point of view of taking something true about what the Edenic story is mentioning, is about fear and hiding and the fact that fear and hiding are uh, constant anxieties that we carry with us and something from which we should be moving. So if we could put something behind us, I don't think it's the understanding of sin. I think it's the addiction to fear and hiding. What are your earliest memories of being afraid? One very early memory of being afraid is I, um, so I grew up speaking Irish and English and um, got into primary school and the teacher, it must have been one of the first days of primary school, the teacher said, today we're going to be learning some words in a new language, um, uh, Irish, because it was assumed that everybody in the class was English speaking. And she said, um, so we're going to be learning some words in a new language. And she said a few words and said, I'll teach you now how to say these and what they mean. And I understood them. And I was frightened because I thought, oh, God, I'm, I'm wrong somehow. She told me I wouldn't understand, and I do. And because I do, something's wrong. And um, <laughs> that was the beginning of an anxious relationship with the question of authority for me. <laughs> and and even your sense of of trusting yourself, of trusting totally. your intuitions. Yeah, and, and am I allowed? And even it's a way of keeping... Because had I put my hand up and said... In, in Irish, as I would have perfectly have been able to do, I understand what you just said and I don't understand why you're telling me um, that I won't understand. And I'm confused. <laughs> that would have been a... Um, that would have been a... 
that would have been the truth. But of course, there's something in you that says, no, don't do that. You know, you're making yourself stick out. You're, you, and you're also flaunting and communicating understanding where perhaps mm. other people do or don't, because we were told we won't. So keep yourself to yourself. Yeah. There's a phrase in Irish, flahul. And it, so it's kind of translated as generous, but it comes from the old Irish word for prince, fly. And so I suppose it may be a more accurate translation. It would be princely. Uh, and it's, I mean, growing up in our family, it was absolutely clear, no be flahul, don't be princely, don't be... Putting on airs. Putting with on airs, airs talking about your capacity, putting right. your hand up and showing off, you know, don't be like that, keep yourself fitting. Um, and I think uh, that was a, a great, one of the great sources of fear in my previous life. In your mind, um, or your, by your lights, is that wedded to the the deeply religious um, sort of history of this island of of that idea of of being somewhat you know prostrate before before the authority before before God before the priest before um, that you you need to have your head bowed kind of in as a as a way of being. Um, um, it's a good question. Um, I don't know, uh, because you see some other Catholic places where they don't have such a relationship with um, with um, not being princely. <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, sure. Yeah, that's... So I remember we used to laugh sometimes whenever there was an American at Mass, because they'd be saying the words out loud. You remember once there was an American behind me, and um, they were saying the, um, the creed, I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. And we were all kind of going, God, oh sounded like a morning uh, totally. DJ, uh, yeah, morning shock jock. morning television uh, yeah. host, you know, doing the morning yeah. program about, you know, this is the best way to start off your day with a green smoothie. And they were just, <laughs> they were speaking like that. And we were all like, who the hell do they think they are talking to God like that? Not a fruit smoothie, but, a, know, but a, yeah, a green yeah, maybe, smoothie. Maybe a but we, were, like, we were like, I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth, you know, all things seen and unseen. <laughs> yeah. It was a kind of a monotone. And there was a way with in which saying something like you meant it. And they, we totally judged that person, for God's sake. They were just saying the creed in the way that they were of course. brought up to say the creed. Yeah. Um, but So I wonder, is it a mixture of um, uh, an inheritance of a post-colonial legacy, um, an inheritance also of, of a cultural approach towards things? When you look particularly at Irish music and sessions that might happen in a pub, um, if any one person is trying to be too prominent, there's mm-hmm. the, there's the sense that session musician brings you into a, a democracy of participation and where mm. there's an ebb and flow, there's a tide within that. And I think that has influenced the culture. And I think that has influenced the religion and the religion has influenced that. So I'm, I'm not sure which one started of first. Course it's always so. a, the culture is always a conversation totally, with, yeah. with all yeah. of these different voices. The... I want to I want to go back to the to the Eden idea uh, again because as I've been as it's emerged in my own writing in this particular book uh, Perfect which has been an examination of of my own childhood and uh, these because religion was the language in which we spoke about everything uh, no matter you know ma- no matter what it was uh, Eden kind of informed it became the metaphor almost by default for thinking about my own childhood and you know, being born into this this loving family and and this idea of perfection, and then at a certain point being exiled, you know, if you like, and and then finding it very hard going, having been in a quite authoritative authoritarian environment uh, where decisions were made for me, and I knew what the expectations were, and it was all about as hewing as close to those expectations as possible. But then when I went out, all of a sudden. I was having to to toil and grow my own food, and if anything was get going to be given birth within me, it was going to be through like great pain and um, but it started to reshape the way that i I saw that metaphor of of Eden and it started to feel much more like a like a reservation uh, in that more constrictive yeah. maybe Native American sense um, than than a place of Mm-hmm. Of beauty that that you would want to return to, or um, that the exile from Eden is this wound that that Jesus was then going to sew up by by paying penance for our sins, and mm-hmm. so I was I was curious to to hear your thoughts on that, and and maybe even 
you know, in relation to your own childhood experience and, and relationship with authority, like you were alluding well, to before? I suppose it, to, to have such an understanding, the departure from Eden in much religious, Christian religious language across many denominations is spoken of as a punishment which therefore means that there's the imagination of perfection previous to the punishment, previous to the exile, which is a diminished state. If you begin to imagine that the text allows within itself the possibility of understanding that the departure from Eden was actually part of their vocation, that they always had to find a way out, but then suddenly it begins to imply that Eden is not so much a place and a, a state of perfection from which they fell, Eden is an understanding about something to do with the source of what it means to be human. And to reflect that even in Eden there was complication, you know. In Eden there's the anxiety about knowledge. Um, and uh, in Hebrew, to, the word for knowledge is always used in the context of sex as well. So mm. in the writing to do with um, Eden, there is an anxiety about sex and sexuality. And that's an interesting thing to recognise, that um, the, the poets who are writing these narratives, particularly Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3, um, they were writing into the state of Eden something of anxiety <laughs> uh, and that in a certain sense the, the, the crossing of the boundary of creativity and curiosity and risk into knowledge, into sex, is something that is at the core of humanity and is some, is some kind of chaos that we're always going to be carrying with us. And so I think that there was great bravery in those poets who wrote that. And in a certain sense, Eden is right here because we carry Eden with us. Uh, the understanding that there is no simple and easy way to finally move yourself into an understanding about what does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to have a body? What does it mean to have a sexual body, sexual desire? What are the ways within which gender as a power as well as an identity man, uh, manufactures pain and divisiveness and murder in this world? So in that sense, Eden wasn't so perfect, <laughs> and we're still there in the sense that we still are, we still are grappling with all of this. And remember, all of this came from nothing. There's a line in that poem: "They came from nothing, so the nothing came with them." Um, and that's that's probably a, my favourite line in the in the poem. Well, I wish uh, so. It's a little bit of a shout out to Paul Valéry, um, um, who has a, a French poet, and one of the English translations of one of his poems says, um, "God." made everything from nothing but the nothing still shows through hmm. and I think that's quite an extraordinary line and so that, um, that I think being in the hands of some Jewish readers of these texts you realise quite how wild and quite how unperfect the perfection of the jouissance of Eden is that mm -hmm. Eden has all of these subcurrents even before there's this serpent with vocal cords talking um, <laughs> that all that, that is actually messy as it is and to discover that that narrative is messy as it is, I think helps us to understand that it's a pretty limited imagination that reads Eden is perfect and everything else is that, is the desire to get back there. No, the desire was always to move from there. And, and what does that mean? It means being attentive to the world we're in right now. Did you journey into that complication over time uh, the way that I have? Or, or was that... No, an I, open, I said all this when I or was, was that an open? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, I would, I would, I would imagine so. This, it's the, it's the teacher again, you know, saying, "Hey, I've, you know, yeah, I've got yeah. some things to teach you." I, I already know. Actually, all, I, I already know all that. Yeah, let me explain this to you in Hebrew. I mean, I suppose the question is really how, how open and shut was the kind of understanding in the in the religious context that you were growing up in. How, how tightly prescriptive was that reading of the text in terms of how literal it was or how open it was to metaphor and, and clearly the way that, that you would approach it no. today you know, as, a, as a literary... Well, I suppose growing up Catholic, um, I mean, the Bible was absolutely part of it. I mean, we read the Gospel of Luke in our class when I was about 11 and we, you know, you'd have heard some Bible stories and obviously there's four readings from the scriptures at Mass every time you go to Mass. So the Bible is absolutely part of it, but it's, it's considered one part of the religious practice. Uh, my understanding is from people who come from other religious, Christian religious traditions, that Bible is everything. You know, have you, and people even refer to your Bible. They, they speak about the Bible in the possessive. Do you know, he knows his Bible. Have you forgotten your Bible? She's, I had my name actually sort of, in, sort of monogrammed is the right yeah. word, but in the, in the leather surface, yes, in, yeah, in foil, yeah. kind of inlay. And it, like it, it the author. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, Which we all are because we're all interpreting the text. Well, yes. Sort of. 
So, I think um, of the various obsessions that religious groups have, um, an obsession with an infallibility, with, the, with an immediate, immediately understandable, infallible understanding of the Bible, that is one of the obsessions of Catholicism. Catholicism does have a broad understanding of what it means to have a theology of revelation and an understanding of the interpretive schools regarding the text. And so the Bible was never a problem for me. I mean, I think as I got quite involved and interested in religion, my parents joined a charismatic Catholic prayer group when I was eight. So I began to hear more about the Bible and more about, I suppose, charismatic worship songs. Um, all written in the 70s that overused agricultural metaphors. <laughs> um, they um, I began to get very interested in the Bible. I remember once sitting Was down, grass the, uh, one of those... <laughs> yeah, uh, one the of wind. Those yeah. Sort of agricultural... Yeah, the wind and the harvest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the sickle. Um, mm. They... I, I remember once sitting down and deciding to write out the book of Daniel on some paper that I had. And I was fascinated. Like, it's a really interesting story. But it, those... The Bible wasn't the authority in that sense, and um, the Bible wasn't the thing to be feared. The bishop was, <laughs> or the pope, mm. or the interpretative tools of the magisterium. You know, those were the, those are the things around which the anxiety about leadership and the anxiety about power and authority, I think, in the Catholic imagination, is linked with and participation mm. in the sacraments and going to confession. The, those were the areas. It wasn't in the text. Mm. Those were the. I was kind of unusual because I was so interested in the Bible. I remember begging for a children's Bible when I was nine and I got uh, got one I think I told you before that the first thing I did was to leaf through to think is there a picture of the devil anywhere and oh, there yeah. was a sky blue devil usually you have to go to, you have to get into heavy metal to uh, yeah, no, to I, really find I that, to that my, artwork yeah, oh. I went to my children's Bible I actually recently um, searched and searched and searched online and found that same children's Bible yeah it's great so and I, I went again and looked for the picture of the devil um, <laughs> Which you find in the temptation stories in the in the gospel traditions. What was your interest in the devil? I don't know. Uh, I suppose partly aren't most children interested in the devil? I mean, <laughs> the, the contraband, the lure. We're back yeah, to the lure of the, totally of the, the contraband. Lure, yeah, as well as, I mean, we're all interested in that bit, bit of chaos we carry in us. And, and I mean, I think Genesis tells this too that there's chaos at the beginning that is not of God's creating. Ted Hughes, in his after the devastation of and the various suicides of his spouses. Um, uh, Ted Hughes um, wrote this book called Crow, which is a reimagining of Eden, but there's this character called Crow there, um, and he, Crow kind of embodies um, malevolence and evil, but also fascination. God can't get over Crow either. God's kind of fascinated by Crow. God's trying to teach Crow how to speak and how to say the word love, and, and Crow croaks out a tsunami <laughs> and so oh um, by my interest in, in the devil as a child like that I, I think um, I think it is a fascination that we have the recognition that if we are to look around the world and to look into our own world and to recognise the desires that we have for stealing for telling a lie for getting away with things that no wonder we needed a devil character in religious text you know, mm. we need somewhere to land that and I, I think the problem is is if that's where you stop if you can have a tradition that understands that that's a literary device because the truth is too difficult to tell, mm. the truth is that that's in us. That is that's that's one of the functions I think of the caricaturing of the devil like that. Mm. The problem is is if you become um, too too literate about such a thing, you actually aren't telling enough truth. If you just if you think that the devil exists, I don't think you're being true enough. <laughs> uh, I, so I don't think the problem is that you're walking away from truth by deconstructing these de- these characters. The problem is, is you're not going deep enough into it. What was 
what was it like for you growing up in a religious context as, as, a, as a gay man and discovering that aspect of yourself that, I mean, I mean you mentioned the idea of this complication of, of that awakening for, mm-hmm. for anybody, but then this extra layer mm-hmm. of complication for yourself. Um, how, what was that experience like? Um, well, um, I suppose firstly it was an experience. It was all I knew. So, um, of course, yeah. and in that kind of knowing, you know a lot of fear. So, I mean, I was I was the boy who was interested, as I've clearly demonstrated in the Bible. I also loved gymnastics. <laughs> And so perfect. And, and you need a lot of uh, flexibility at times, yeah. sort of in both of those. Yeah. Uh, those so partly, it came as no surprise to me that I was, you know, it, I was in a boys' school for primary school where, you know, everybody's calling each other faggot all the time, and um, when you realise what a faggot is, you go and you realise you are one of those. Partly, it was like, oh God, I'm not surprised. Um, now obviously, there's an entire derogatory reading of sexuality and desire within the context of that. And you learn a lot of things there, which is, one, I need to become a better liar than I currently am. Hmm. I need to practice ways of deflecting attention. And uh, so within the context of that, I mean, it, it wasn't like I'd ever heard a sermon against homosexuality by the age I was 11 and kind of coming to, coming to the beginnings of recognising, I think this is me. Um, I, um, it, it was just that it wasn't even considered. It was unspeakable. So it wasn't that it was a, a place within which it was tolerated. It was a place within which it was just unconsidered. This was Cork? That this is Cork, yeah, yeah. 10 miles outside Cork City. Um, and I think that was fairly regular for many Irish households. You know, I was 15 the first time I heard anybody say something positive about a gay person. A woman I know um, said that she was reading a book where there was a gay character who was religious. And she spoke about how that the book was very sympathetic to the, the tension that he was living. And I remember just thinking, my God. Is, is is that possible to, to have a to have a um, a benevolent narrative about the, the the torn experience that you feel? Years later, I said to her, "Did you say that to me deliberately? Did you think this is a quiet way of saying something?" And she went, uh, "No, I'm just talking about the book." <laughs> so, um, but I remember I probably thought about that for a year about what she said. I mean, it didn't even occur to me to ask for the book. Um, because what would happen if somebody found it? You know, like it wasn't, and I was hmm. an avid reader, but it didn't occur to me at all to ask for the book. So, I mean, I was 30 before anybody asked me, are you seeing anyone? Uh, 30. 30. And the, the ease with which this friend, Greg Fromhals, who I think you know, yeah, Greg course. said, are you seeing anyone? And I started to cry, because he, he was just asking casually, you know, like the way a normal person would be asked. Yeah. So for listeners, Greg is a, he's involved in evangelical circles in Ireland yeah, and, and artistic and, as well. And, and, and artistic as a director of yeah. music videos. Yeah. And We've known each other for 25 years. And so, uh, yeah. so I mean, I'd known him since I was 18. Oh, wow, I didn't realise you had that much history. Yeah, so. yeah. So uh, he, uh, I mean, we were friends and years later I came out at him and that was awkward, you know, not because of him, but because of you just begin in, in those religious circles you begin to assume that everybody will find will have the same difficulties that I would have had about myself you know mm-hmm. and unfortunately there was enough evidence to prove that that was true as well that some people did indeed have that and would speak with great would would, would make really diabolical <laughs> associations with anybody who's speaking about being gay and would imply that if you're gay you've abandoned you know all relationship with religion and all relationship with trying to live a life that has some kind of integrity um, so uh, I was just so used to expecting that from myself that I expected it from others too and from time to time got evidence that that was the case so mm. so living under the shadow of that I mean is a powerful and a painful thing is that was that its own form of exile was there a, did you experience the the dissociation that, that so easily comes from trying to have one outward facing you know persona and then and then one that that you're shielding from view yeah i remember I, that affect your art as as yeah. well or what you were writing well, poetry is a great is a great salve for that because poetry can be cold and i remember writing in kind of very ridiculous kinds of codes i'm, I'm going to sneeze in a sec i can feel <laughs> it's always a great thing for a recording um Poetry was a great um, coding. I remember, I've lost these poems now and I wish I hadn't, but I remember 
and writing a poem when I was 16 that said, my place is where I write this, my place is just right here, my place is where this comes from, my place is full of fear. And so he was speaking about this internal truth that I knew. And then the last, last stanza of the poem spoke of the fear of the fire that will rise before my eyes, which was a, a, about hell. Mm. Um, and uh, there was this understanding that in the, I had told nobody at that stage that I was gay. And in the privacy of the place of truth, that that for me was a one where I thought, does finding a sense of home in this place of truth inevitably mean that I'm marching headlong into hell? Mm. And that was frightening. <laughs> when you're 16 because that wasn't abstract that was very very real hell was a real was a real place at, at, at that yeah, stage in your in your yeah, understanding I've been around so. charismatic circles for eight years at that stage I was involved in lots of ecumenical so bringing Baptists and Methodists and Anglican and Presbyterian and Catholic kids together and some of the people that I met there had a very they introduced me really to the idea of hell in a very particular way and so that that became very frightening mm. so I went through um, reparative therapies and exorcisms then when I was 18 and 19 um, to try to get rid of the gay and I suppose all of that, some of that was kind of mandated by the places where I was working, I was working in a religious environment um, so some of it I didn't have a choice in mm. but I did have a participation within it um, and it wasn't like I was thinking fuck I hate this and I have to do it because I have to do it, do you know. I wasn't thinking that the, I hate this wasn't there. I was thinking, no, this, of course, I am that bad. I am possibly possessed by the devil. I am possibly possessed by something so corrupt in me that it needs some kind of reparative therapy. So the, you can um, you can turn self-hatred into a system whereby you participated in yourself. Um, yes, absolutely. And, I mean, I think it's part of the colonial project also. The colonial project went to places and said, if we can get them fighting against themselves and make them unfluent in the language of power, literal language of power, introduce a new language, introduce a new religious system, and introduce a new tension within the community, that we have we have done that successfully, and that is part of a successful, in inverted commas, colonial project. And I think um, the way of holding people captive when they don't fit into a particular genre of um, sexual narrative about themselves is manifests in an individual story the kind of experience that a colonial story also is. it's a it's a subjugation it's a yeah. it's a it's a, a use of power for dominance um, and that's one of the oldest sins in the book <laughs> so I still believe in sin I just locate it differently now I, I'm fascinated with the idea of sin, and which would be no surprise to anybody who's um, has read as far as the name of of this podcast. You know, this idea of perfect, this idea that that perfection is so insidious that it that it fucks you up, that it it distorts your your thinking because it places that you can't have sin, an aberration, without placing that waypoint, which. And then you judge the distance from that and yeah. and the transgression and and of course that's you know heterosexuality that's you know that can be racial that can be sexual and 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 the church has been quite happy to to plant that flag and I think we're we're seeing the like the corrosive kind of effects of that especially with mm-hmm. you know the current political situation in the in the states and um but I wanted, I, I wanted to go back to you writing poetry, like you know, dealing with, with this self-loathing, dealing with these parts of yourself that you're, that you're if you're not completely actively involved in trying to, to rip out, you're, you're at least acquiescing to this, you know, this kind of pressure. Uh, but poetry is, there's nothing, in terms of writing, there's nothing more vulnerable than poetry. I, I realize that you can code, that you can um, cr- create this encryption within poetry, but but still the words are so few and bear so much weight that there's there's nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. Poetry seems very ill-suited to, yeah. to I mean, that I task. Hate, I hate my poetry. Like I, I would never leave the house without bringing... I had a book where I'd write poetry. 
and I'd bring it with me. Like I'd never leave it anywhere for anybody else to read. So um, I think it was the that I needed. Um, I needed the precision. I needed the terse art. I needed the capacity for all that empty em empty space as well on the page. Mm. And one of the things that poetry does is that it leaves many things unsaid, but by leaving them unsaid, they're still there. There's allusions, there's references, there's ways within which you're working with art, you're working with form, you're working with making reference to other pieces of art. Um, and so you're feeling like you're not alone because you're thinking, oh, I took mm. that from Shakespeare, or yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I am part of this project. And I think particularly in an Irish context where, I mean, from the age of five, we were learning poetry in English and Irish off by heart, and that continued on throughout the rest of the school career. So poetry is absolutely understood as a vital art that's needed. Much and all, as maybe you'd get a bit embarrassed about it, you know, saying to everybody, I write poetry, but it is part of the consciousness of Irishness. And um, so it's not surprising to me that I turned there. Um, poetry also has many different variations of rules, so I like the idea that form um, can be um, played with, and people work within form and break form. So I, that, that really appealed to me. And so from the point of view of, of words that can have a creative relationship with rules, that was new to me when words, religious words, did not have a creative relationship with rules. So hmm. poetry to me was always a place to be more experimental, to be more open, to be able to create worlds. Um, uh, that was a really important thing for me. Um, I, and I, I think I did need the vulnerability I, I desperately needed a place where I could tell the truth and I could only tell it to myself so poetry mm. was the only place to do that and that requires a vulnerable language even if it was coded <laughs> a little bit <laughs> but it does require a vulnerable language Help do you feel like you could share that poetry with others? Um, or when did, took, did you feel I, it ready? Took years, to, yeah, it took years. I mean, for there was a couple of years. I started working with a religious organization as I was, when I was eighteen, and there's a few years, maybe only two, when I didn't write much at all. Um, and then um, there was one particular summer where it just exploded in me, and I showed a trusted friend. I mean, I had pages and pages and pages of stuff playing with form. And I showed it to a friend, and she read them through, and she said, um, you know, these are good. And I was like, oh, you think so? And she went, yeah, like, you know, they are good. Um, and that it was a lovely compliment to have. And um, I think she might have been the only person I showed at that stage. Siobhan, was her name, is her name. And um, but that, that inspired me to continue. Um, I started to write fairly prolifically. Uh, in a journal, I mean, I didn't have a computer. Nobody had a computer, um, and so writing a lot gave, in terms of prose and poetry, gave me a real interest in um, having a creative relationship with language, and that language itself is a discovery. And you don't necessarily have to start off knowing where you're going. The the, the language will take you somewhere that you don't have to that you don't have to dictate from the word go. So I, I would sometimes have critique when I read something that from the word go would tell you exactly where it was going like oh for god's sake I mean that's helpful if you're reading a manual for how to operate I don't know a piece of machinery mm -hmm. but um, I'm always interested in feeling like the author of a particular piece of writing themselves is on a journey of discovery and respects their readership enough to also say I don't know what you'll get from this I think I know what I'm trying to do but I'm not even completely sure of that. But I am interested 
and will know that something more is being revealed than I think is being revealed. That for me is is the vulnerability of all kinds of writing, prose or poetry. Mm. Um, and th- that opened up for me, and I wasn't I wasn't moving in any literary circles. I was reading prolifically as I always had, but I wasn't moving in any circles. And um, language itself became a salvation to me, whether that was in prose or in poetry. I began to read Walter Wangeren Jr., who is a um, a Lutheran. Um, minister and lecturer. He is, his master's is in Latin, and so he wrote um, myths, uh, fables, um, he wrote about preaching as well, and his use of language was just electric, tender, and full of richness, and I began to um, emulate his own writing uh, in hmm. my own, because I found myself reading him just thinking, this is not just about where this narrative is going to in terms of its culmination, this is about the richness of language as the process, and I began to deliberately copy his writing in my own handwriting in my, in my diaries, um, and that was that was a great saving to me because bit by bit my own writing pushed through that. But I needed him as a language to be able mm. to. I still return to him from time to time. I have great admiration for him, and I uh, I found that language can be something much more rich than what I had understood it to be particularly religious language and mm. opening myself up through poetry to the question of power um, and the question of creativity and the question of surprise helped me then to return to religious text and to read that as poetry and to go maybe thinking oh we know exactly what this means obviously God is great humans are bad you need to repent and suddenly when those things are taken away you begin to participate in the poetry I showed a poem in mine once a poem that I loved to somebody that I worked with and I said I don't even know where this came from or what it really means um, and he went I know exactly what it means it's about you being a sinner and I was just thinking you haven't a fucking clue and it was really helpful because I thought I think you might read all texts like that and I, and I found that to be so limited because I thought that kind I of wrote, profane certainty like this yeah Totally. I wrote this and I don't know what it's about. So the idea that somebody else is reading it and saying in a really clear way, they're not saying, oh, this is what I get from it. That would have been an interesting comment. But they're saying, I'm telling you what you meant. Um, And they're saying it in such a particular way. It wasn't that it wasn't about singing, but the idea that that was all that it was about just felt to me to be um, um, reductive and arrogant. There's a bridge somewhere that that I'd love to to hear you describe in terms of of going from that that charismatic tradition and, and understanding and and your way of approaching spirituality and Christianity and that and that tradition and and where you are now where was that stream where was um where was that crossing over for you in terms of of opening yourself up to that that kind of metaphorical power and possibility of um, could because you weren't it didn't purge you from that from the tradition um, your, those that pain that you had had um, I'm curious to to hear you um, describe what what happened uh, Siobhan the woman to whom I showed the um, poetry when I was about 21 um, she and I are very good friends still and uh, at one point uh, in 1990 Eight, 20 years ago I um, moved to Switzerland for a year and then while I was away I realised I wanted to stay away I mean I love languages so I'd always wanted to live somewhere with a different language so I was in French speaking Switzerland and I um, had an opportunity then to move to Australia as a result of a connection I made in Switzerland and I was talking to Joanne because she'd come out to visit and she said um if you do because I've been a bit nomadic she said if you do move to Australia and you're going to be there for a few years as the plan was and as it did turn out to be she said if you do this I think you should probably find a therapist Um, and she said a proper one because she knew that I'd been to this reparative therapist Uh, she she said a proper one like one who was professionally supervised as well as having a professional qualification themselves Um, and she's a close friend and so I took her advice very seriously 
and I went, I was, I mean, I was a daily mass goer during this time, and actually mass was a salvation for me, because the, the, the poetry of the mass is really rich, and some of the charismatic experience was just a little bit manic, whereas the poetry of the mass was sonorous and rich, and I love the Stations of the Cross too, and I actually found those to be a great, the rhythm of that to be a great, um, a great grounding for me. Um, so I was going on the Stations of the Cross, and in the ma- a church where I used to go to Mass, they had a notice board, and on the notice board was a notice for a Jesuit centre for spirituality, and they had some professional psychotherapists who worked there also. Um, so they were sympathetic to people for whom spirituality was part of their pathway, but they weren't working within, they weren't trying to say, well, what would Jesus want? You know, so this wasn't the quote-unquote Christian counsellor? No, it wasn't. No, yeah. this was a professional, qualified and professionally supervised yeah. psychotherapists yeah. working within the Jungian tradition who happened also to be working uh, familiar with the broad spiritualities of so and that was important to me because religion much and all as I always knew that it could be destructive for people I knew that it also had the places within it that were constructive particularly for me because um, I, I continued to return to the text I love the Stations of the Cross I love the poetry of the Mass and I knew these weren't kind of um, disordered addictive um, patterns these were things to ground a life you know and, and so I um, phoned up this psychotherapist and um, went along and I went for three years all the time that I lived in Australia well so it was within toward the end of the first year that I'd managed to screw up the courage to phone <laughs> so I was talking I, I'm years. distracted by the stations of the cross and somebody hammering on wood oh, yeah, um, down, downstairs oh, yeah. <laughs> a, Jesus has been crucified below us here he is um, but yeah, so I think that was an enormous turning point because I did bring poetry into that. I did very deliberately from the first week say to him, I read poetry too, and he said, read, read one for me. Hmm. Uh, and of course, like always, I had my poetry with me because I was petrified anybody would go into my room where I was living and read it. Of course, so, this is the briefcase, uh, handcuffed, <laughs> yes. handcuffed to your, to your wrist. <laughs> like the Coca-Cola recipe. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I started to read, and I was reading and he said, read me another one, and read me another one. And I started, and he was doing an appreciative inquiry thing about my life. And toward the end I went, I'm not here to talk about poetry. I'm here to talk about the fact that I'm religious and I'm gay and I don't know what to do. And he went, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Do you know? And it was an interesting thing because I, I thought my whole story would be telling this story of me being something terrible and something shameful and I'm frightened to tell my friends a, because they'll think I'm not a Christian, and B, because they'll think that, you know, my male friends will think that I'm, that they'll cut off friendship because they'll be frightened of, right. of having a gay man as a friend, etc. Right. And um, he... You seem like such a, a predator, you know, yeah. yourself. You just, it's the, it's the, yeah. gla- the, the spectacles and everything. It's the way in which you participate in other people's projections onto you. Of course. Um, yeah. Totally. I mean, it's very powerful. It takes a while to learn that those are other people's projections. Right and that their projections onto me tells me a lot about their erotic imagination and nothing about my erotic activity. Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, uh, but, so Peter Saunders, the therapist, was an extraordinary salvation to me because he had such an appreciation for Jung. He was working in, in an Ignatian um, centre. So I began to read a little bit more about Ignatius and his understanding of the imagination. And I really think of that as one of the conversions. I think life is a process of ongoing conversions and turnings. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm revolted to speak in poetic <laughs> language, like at the end of a end of a sonnet, either at line nine or line thirteen, the sonnet is supposed to turn on itself. Uh, a yeah. volta, from which we get the word revolt or revolve. Mm. And uh, it was one of those revolvings for me, totally, and it really did change an enormous amount because it opened up a vista of imagination that had hitherto been open in poetry but had not yet really opened up in religion, and he supported me in in that because he started to say things like, I think you're beginning to suspect that God might be happy with you being gay. Hmm. And I remember just kind of thinking, I think you're right that I'm suspecting that. And I can't tell anybody, but you've just told me hmm. to have a small community, albeit a professional therapeutic yeah. environment, um, was enormous. Read this poem for me. Okay. It seems like a, a nice moment to, yeah. to hear this. Yeah, read. I mean, this poem is about a vote. I once was blind, but now I can see. I once was him, but now I'm me. I once was cold, but now I'm not. I used to fear hell where the fire is hot. I wanted to be straight, but the thing is I'm queer. I thought I belong there, but I belong here. 
I once was wrong because I thought I was right. I thought that the darkness was the same as the light, and I thought that the light was consoling and beautiful. All it asked was be pure and be right and be dutiful, but light can be insipid, and daytime can be vacuous, and no cult is so crude as the cult of the miraculous. I thought that walking on the water would be the end of it all, and addiction to articulation was the start of my fall. I fell into meaninglessness, I fell into sin, I fell into darkness, and I felt caged in and I fell into the arms of something that was lurking in the corner in the shadows and it's been slowly converting my methods and madness into myth and new meaning my sagas and sadness given girth and given grieving and now I believe in the God of the human the good and the glorious the generous and moving I once was blind now I'm blinder still and inside my own nighttime I am silent and still What does miracle mean to you? Is that like, from the line, no cult is so crude, the cult of the miraculous? <laughs> yeah, I, I loved how confounding that that line was. I think there's there's a lot of the the poem that is you've digested and then and then offered in in a way that's that's pre digested and, and and that line to me just caught in my throat as I was in, taking it in and, and I suppose a part of that is a reference to the idea that there could be miraculous cures for gay people that they certainly suddenly turn straight um, so that was part of mm. the history of my own experience with miracle I suppose in charismatic circles you know you'd meet somebody who had a bad back and people would pray for that to be cured and you, from time to time something would happen and somebody would have a narrative where they say I was in pain and now I'm not but most of the time people would come away thinking I was in pain and now I'm both in pain and shamed. <laughs> and uh, the the vestiges of the 99% of people for whom prayer happens, but the very thing that is being prayed for doesn't happen and the shame that comes about as a result of that struck me as a critique of miracle. Mm. Um, and um, we inherit a problem because I mean the gospel narratives are so full of miracle. I wrote my undergrad thesis on the non-miraculous interactions between Jesus and um, anonymous people in the Gospel of John. and Because uh, I, I wanted to look at what are the human interactions of Jesus of Nazareth that are not based on some kind of miracle cure? And what is a way to read those in a narrative and theological way? Um, mm. Then I wrote my master's thesis when I went on to do my master's about the human encounters between Jesus and marginalised characters in the Gospel of Mark. And for me, encounter was a much more important question and a deconstruction of power and, a, and, a, and an introduction of reciprocality where previously there might have been some kind of dominance. That was a much more important thing to focus on rather than the magic of cure, you know, mm. suddenly somebody can see or, you know. And so for me... There's there such a, an obsession with, Je with Jesus as the, as the miracle worker, as the, yeah. as the superhero, yeah, you know, sure. bounding around, you know, the ancient Near East and... But the stories themselves of the miracles are fascinating. Like the woman who pushed through the crowd in Mark, in Mark 5, and she's cured, it says she, she felt in her body that she was cured of her disease after she had touched the hem of Jesus' garment. It, she's fascinating because she's slinking away, and currently 
only she, the author, and we, the reader, know about her. Jesus turns around in absolute ignorance and asks this question, who touched me? And so eventually she's compelled to come forward and it says she falls at his feet and tells the whole story. And what is the whole story? The whole story is not about her malady. The whole story is about the social reading of her malady, that she had a malady where, at least in law, whether in, in practice or not, at least in law, she should have been maintained within her own home. Preferably, if she lived in a home that had a room with no windows, she should have been there as Zaba, as what she would have been referred to as. And she tells the whole truth, which is to say, I didn't let that keep me in. I was out anyway, way before I was cured, way before I touched you. And this small cross-section of society that's crowding around this miracle man, I've pushed through you all to get here. And now here I am. I wonder what happened to the, to the, the geography of body. In that space, did people move away? Did they think, she touched me? And so... That, that's a very, very powerful story. Jesus says to her, be cured of your whipping. That's the word mastix. That's the word he uses in Greek, in the Greek within which it's written. Some of the translations, some of the English language translations say, be cured of your complaint, which is a fascinating way to diminish and to kind of project. Um, but the word is a very, very powerful word. And to have a whip, and to be whipped, you need a whipper. So somebody who was your torturer. And so I see that as a narrative that, um, has an enormous societal interest in who is it that subjugates people who are living with a malady by further rules that read an impurity into their malady. I find a lot of connection about that um, in many ways in which I can be both the victim and the perpetrator of that. Suddenly the story about miracle and cure actually turns into something about a societal question about who makes these rules that keep people locked up. And she tells the whole yeah. story. It's amazing. I mean, you've been working with this with this community in in, in Northern Ireland, the Cormila community, uh, trying to bring about some kind of reconciliation and healing, you know, in the in these in the ongoing trauma really of of the divisions in, in Northern Ireland, and and so sometimes it feels like there is some some kind of miracle needed because of how deep that division is. Um, but but I love that uh, the way that you've reached into art, into into poetry, and 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 just seeing that if there's if there's a miracle, it's just the ability to to speak the truth plainly mm-hmm. and to allow that pain to to be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean that's one of the things about poetry is that I think sometimes people. People I know who feel intimidated by poetry think that poetry is full of flowery language as well as language that's impenetrable. And so I won't understand it. And it's just long words for things that make no sense and have no bearings on the day-to-day reality of lives. And I see poetry as exactly the opposite of that. I see poetry as a raw, vulnerable art that is putting on paper, sometimes obscurely, sometimes not, in connection with yourself as well as connection with the canon of poetry finding a way to etch some kind of way that says, I am here. And I see in that the, the project of survival. And I, I find it a really meaningful thing. And so I, I tend to think as everything is poetry, whether or not people are, you know, if somebody's coming on a residential weekend where they're telling the story of the pain of sectarianism or the trauma of having found themselves participating in a sectarian project themselves that they never would have imagined, or the trauma of having realised the impact of their involvement in a particular sectarian act that they might have agreed with in theory and then they suddenly have to live the consequences of it. Um, that, uh, th- that is poetry because people are etching words and choosing words that are really powerful. There's a poem called The Pedagogy of Conflict in the, Exile, in the Troubles book and part of that poem came as a result of sitting in a room with people, many of whom had taken lives as a result of being in paramilitary organisations, and they were arguing about which verb to use. Hmm. So do you, one person said, I murdered someone, and another person went, never use that word. Uh, you didn't murder someone, you were part of a conflict, and lives were lost in the conflict. Right. Somebody else said, no, I used the phrase, I took a life. Somebody else said, I prefer to say a life was lost because of my actions. Hmm. Somebody else then said, well, no, I... I use the word murder, and uh, you've, you, this was not abstract at all, and it was an argument about verbs, yeah. and that was powerful, and to, to witness that in a room, and to hear the tensions that were going on, and the ways within which a word is a gateway 
into responsibility was a really powerful thing. Absolutely. We're coming up to the end of our time. It's been such a pleasure and there's a hundred topics I'd love to, <laughs> to drill into, but um, let's, uh, let's end on a poem. Uh, and I had, I had one in particular uh, that came up uh, just as you were, as you were speaking there. Uh, it's called Conversation Starters. Would you read this sure. one to... Um, yeah, this came, poem came as a result of working on a dialogue project with women from um, different political and religious backgrounds. And um, there's it's a composite character in this where lots of stories are being woven into this. There's stories about um, almost a reminiscence about the troubles and there was a kind of a sense of fun that some people had. You know, my partner Paul will say that, you know, um, uh, when you're seven and there's lots of cops around, it's amazing to get chased by a cop when you're small and you can fit through gates. You know, there's soldiers around, like you just say, like, that's fun. And this is the kind of stuff. So there's, mm. within this, there's a, there's a nostalgia, which, and that isn't a silly nostalgia. It's just people saying, look, this is what kids, this is the way kids survive. You know, they like getting chased by bigger people and they're small enough to fit through a gap in a gate. So that's, that's brilliant. That's their super, their superpower. That's their superpower, of course. Yeah. And so there, there's a way within which time contracts in this poem. There's a, there's a bit about um, somebody making reference, and this happened over and over, where somebody fell in love with somebody from the other side. It's the Romeo and Juliet mm. narrative, which absolutely happens in these mm. um, places. And then ways within which um, people who didn't die nonetheless were diminished through the trauma of the troubles. And then people saying, it's good to start talking now. So mm. conversation starters. Do you remember when you could read the troubles by the nearness of the choppers and if the coppers looked aggressive or looked calm? One time, long ago, I thought I loved a man whose hands were big and meaty. Later on, I found that he had eaten with the other side once a week or more. I remember crying while I was lying on the floor. I remember thinking, I just don't know if I can cope with any more of this. Half a lifetime later, there were men, both grown and young, gunned on a Wednesday at the bookies. Five men died and another dozen hearts were frozen. They lived cold and lonely lives from then. And when I'd see them, Jesus, I would wish that I could see them warmer. Three dead from the drink and another one's a former user, keeping on the wagon now, thank God. And we loved a game of chases from the peelers and the riots. We loved to hear the peace and quiet broken by a bottle burning small fire. Small Shawnee was a flyer. You couldn't catch him if you tried. He's a grown man now. He lost his son and he watched his wife decide to die. Slowly, like all those other unrecorded murders in the dark. And bloody hell, this life's been stark. But I'm alive, and I've started telling out my story. And I'm not the only one who's suffered. And I'm not the only one who's found a way of living kindly. Conversation has been finding me, finding that tea and grief share well around a table. Even all those yawning years of sadness can't stop the powerful feeling that I'm glad this talking has begun. <laughs> and I'm sad that this talking has ended. Um, but it's it's wonderful to chat. We'll get maybe we'll get to do it again. Oh, for sure. um, yeah, but before we turn off the microphone, uh, tell our listeners where they can find your poetry uh, and or anything else about yourself uh, in terms of where you live online and yeah, so, and do your thing. The books can be bought wherever you buy books. There are three books published by Canterbury Press and one book published by Hodder. Which are all fantastic, and you've read from two of them uh, during this conversation. Yeah, and thanks to Canterbury Press for um, the uh, permission to read these. So. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed the topics we covered in this episode, head over to my website at jason-killingsworth.com, where you will find lots more content to check out. While you're on my page, be sure to sign up for my newsletter so you don't miss the latest articles and videos I'll be posting there in the days to come. There are links in the upper right corner to my various social media accounts if you want to hit me up directly. The theme music in this episode has been Morning Flats by the band Limbic System. And if you're looking them up online, just keep in mind that their name has a bunch of Y's in it, like Leonard Skinnerd. Okay, that's it for now. Till next time. 
Stay curious, keep making that thing you're convinced the world will despise you for, and try to be a bit more patient with yourself. Because as the proverb reminds us, be happy while you're living, for you're a long time dead. Take care.